This is Car Expert. Another electric ute coming to Australia is only good news because at the moment we're still kind of starved for that stuff. But the Civic Hybrid is a wonderful car to drive. It's way more fun and fast than any Toyota Hybrid on the market right now. For a lot of Audi buyers who are looking at going electric, the Q8 e-tron now just makes more sense than the old e-tron did. Hello, James Wong. Hello, how are you? Yeah, the, the reason why we're laughing is um, both of our panel members are in the same room and they have to keep muting their microphones um, when they don't want to talk. And obviously, Joe, you thought that I was going to talk to Scott Colley first. I did because normally you go in alphabetical order by surname. I literally said so that this is going to be a very off-topic sort of reference, but there's a very funny video of Mariah Carey missing her cue to start a song and I literally did the exact same thing and I feel like <laughs> such an idiot. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hello, Scully. <laughs> Did you actually mean to mute yourself there or were no, you doing I, it as a joke? I, no, I thought my – I usually do it <laughs> – I usually do it using the button on the microphone, but you guys can't see if I'm muted doing that. So I pressed that then realised I was also <laughs> – hello, Mandy. This is – yeah. This is It's great. good to know, though. This, this happened when you weren't here and I thought it was my fault. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm feeling now that maybe it was James's fault because he's been here for both of these he and has. both of them have descended into chaos. Yes. <laughs> I've also messed up both times. <laughs> um, now, this is our last podcast for the year, so I thought it might be a great idea to chat about the favourite cars that you've driven this year. Well, we start with you, Scully. Uh, yeah, my my favourite cars I've driven this year, uh, there's probably two that really stood out to me, one of which was the Porsche Cayman GT4 RS. Um, I know we've talked about it on the podcast already. I know it's a predictable answer, but it's not so much the way it looks. Obviously, the way it drives and handles is incredible, and I loved it on track. But I think the real highlight for me was the noise. Um, I just sort of, whenever I think about that car, I just think about the intensity of the sound right behind your head with the engine there and the air intakes. And it just, compared to anything else, it stood out so vividly. Um, So, yeah, for, for me, that was probably the highlight. What about you, um, It's That's an interesting question, and I feel like I get this question anytime I talk to somebody about my job. I can never narrow it down. I the, Some of the ones that stick out for me, I really enjoyed driving um, the Cooper products when they came out this year. Um, it was something that I was really looking forward to trying, um, and the Formentor was great, and also being able to drive the Leon plug-in hybrid was really good. When I think about something, I'm just trying to think of what I've given a really good score this year. I feel like there was another car that I really enjoyed too, but I can't think of it off the top of my head, so clearly <laughs> left a good impression. Um, but, you know, I, some, I don't think some people realize we literally are driving at least one car a week for like 50 or so weeks of the year, and sometimes you drive more. Mm. I, the amount of cars that I've driven, I, I couldn't even tell you. So, yeah, Cooper was really cool. Um, I think I might just have to roll with that for now. <laughs> New brand is the first thing that comes to mind. I, uh, I actually don't blame you. My favorite car was a Volkswagen Up, so you guys know. <laughs> this is this is Mandy's daily driver, which is in lieu of a Volkswagen Beetle, um, yes. which is yeah. working again. Mandy, was that a Christmas oh, yeah. present? A, a functioning engine? Yeah, no, no. It's it's been it's been going fine for the last couple of years. Touch wood. <laughs> so it's it's got to be right for that big road trip I've mentioned um, past podcast in March. So. Um, 
got to get it fully serviced and ready for that. So we'll see how we go. So question without notice for you guys. What do you think is the worst car you've driven this year? Again, there's, I, I know that there's something, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I feel like I did drive the Jeep Compass at some point this year and I wasn't the biggest fan of that. Um, I enjoyed it when I first got it and then as I spent more time with it, it was uh, less and less fun. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I know for me, it, it wasn't a press car. It was a rental car. It was a Suzuki Bellino down in Tasmania. Um, and we, we picked it up on a Friday night and it was dark. And the guy, when we, or the woman we picked it up said, oh, just let us know if there's any damage on it. And every single panel was dinged. The steering wheel was at 45 degrees. Oh. It, uh, it had led a very, very hard life, um, which is also evidenced by the fact that when we got it, they said that if you plan on taking the car onto any beaches or into any caves, you just need to get extra insurance. Um, evidently, that's something they need to warn people about because apparently damage to the roof of the car still counts. Um, so I've driven a Bellino before and quite enjoyed it, but this particular rental one had just led such a tough life. It was not in great nick. How many caves did it have? Did, did it not all that many. It would have been sort of 15-odd thousand, something like that. Oh, wow, um, really? But it just it had just been driven hard on – like the Tassie roads are fantastic fun, but they're also – you know, twisting, winding, bumpy. I think it had just been driven like a rally car for its entire life. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, uh, if you've got a, a favourite car that was uh, released this year that you're pretty excited about, you can always get in touch with us at podcast at carexpert.com.au. Let's get into this week's news. To talk about this week's car news, we invite Jack Quick back. Hello, Jack. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. Now, this is a little bit long overdue. An electric Toyota Hilux concept has confirmed a Toyota's brand belief in uh, EVs, finally. Are we going to see a Hilux EV? Well, yes, I, I would love to see a Hilux EV because, as you say, it's been a long time coming. But, yeah, uh, Toyota revealed this Hilux Revo BEV concept in Thailand um, as part of its uh, 60th anniversary of its presence in Thailand. Um, it was uh, it was also shown alongside a smaller um, IMVO pickup concept. Um, this is a big deal, obviously, because it's a, an electric Hilux, but um, even more so because uh, Toyota CEO Akio Toyota uh, was in, uh, in in attendance, and he was the one revealing the concepts. Um, at this stage, there are little details uh, known about this um, Hilux EV concept, so we don't know uh, what the battery size is, what uh, claimed range it'll have, uh, or other things such as payload or towing, things that you people want to know. Um, but what we, what we do kind of know is it's it looks to be based on the internal combustion powered Hilux, um, and it also has uh, with a it has a closed grille at the front, and there's also a charging port on the left uh, front quarter panel. So it obviously looks like an EV. Um, at this stage, uh, Toyota hasn't committed to an EV uh, Ute, um, but it has been experimenting with um, alternative fuel, uh, fuels. You might have seen uh, a few weeks ago, a month or so ago now, um, Toyota revealed uh, a hydrogen fuel cell of a Hilux concept uh, in Europe. So they are experimenting uh 
with what to do in the Hilux, whether that be an electric uh, fuel cell. Have to wait and see what actually happens. Um, but Sean Hanley, the Toyota Australia Vice President of Sales, Marketing and Franchise Operations, uh, said this uh, Hilux concept confirms Toyota's belief in the importance of battery electric vehicles and into the specific challenges involved in developing electrified and commercial vehicles. Now, guys, I want to know, uh, when do you think we'll be seeing an electrified or EV version of the Hilux? I think it's going to be a little while. Uh, Toyota is a brand that doesn't tend to do things by half, and it tends to move quite slowly, as we've seen with the Tundra hitting Australia. Um, the car is theoretically ready to go. There are right-hand drive mules running around, but they're not ready to be sold to the public yet because it wants to put e extra testing in on local roads. Um, so I think we're a ways off. And I think, to be honest, having seen that Ford has now committed to the F-150 Lightning, Chevrolet has electric Silverado, Ram is working on its Revolution pickup truck, Toyota's a bit behind the curve on this front. I'm not saying that everyone wants an electric Hilux, but there is unquestionably a market for it, and Toyota is currently the pickup or ute leader in Australia. If it goes long enough without an electric ute and someone else can get the jump on it, and we know that Ford is working on an electric Ranger, Volkswagen's confirmed that it wants an electric Amarok, uh, among others, there is a very real possibility that the generation that currently thinks of Hilux when they think of ute might start to associate that word and that space with something else in the electric world. What about you, Jawo? How long do you reckon we'll see a uh, an electric Toyota Ute? Uh, well, I think we, for Hilux specifically, I think we're going to have to wait for the next generation. I feel like this concept that they've shown in Thailand is more of like a preview of what's to come in the future. Obviously, we've seen um, Toyota Europe reveal a, a fuel cell version. Um, there's been rumors rumors of a hybrid powertrain coming with the next one, which potentially has pushed back the the launch of a new generation Hilux because the current one is quite old now. So to to develop an all-electric powertrain on this platform would likely see very, very bad compromises in terms of its ability, keeping in mind that a Hilux is expected to tow, it's expected to go off-road, it's expected to do so many things. And this is the this is potentially the issue that a lot of manufacturers are going to have with electric utes because we, even when you look at something like an F-150 Lightning, as soon as you put a trailer on the back, the range you know goes down to a third and it would be the same for any of the new other new ones coming out of America. Um, Toyota is also already shown a, a larger ute um, electric concept, which appears to be a version of the new Tundra. So it's clearly um, part of their plans. I think what Toyota tends to do is they, they obviously um, – have to be very considerate of their existing market or their existing customer base. They have to appeal to a very wide range of demographics, price points, and things like that. And I think that, you know, there's an expectation from within the company that if Toyota is going to do an EV, it has to still be a Toyota. It still has to do everything the way that you would expect. It has to last. It has to, you know, because you've got, you know, you think of it's a long-running joke, but you think of like your typical Corolla and Camry customer base. It's a lot of older um, customers that perhaps don't quite grasp the ins and outs of plugging a vehicle in or, you know, they just expect to put the, the trailer hitch on the back of whatever they're driving and it just works. So there's a lot of things that I think Toyota um, as a brand has to do um, that's quite specific to their their customer base. And so I feel like this is why they're so far, well, they appear to be so far behind the rest of the industries because they're trying to keep their customers at the forefront of what they're doing. I think that defense is really lazy, uh, not from you, James, but from Toyota in general, if, if that is the logic, because you don't have to give people 
only an electric car. Ford in the States still offers the regular F-150. Chevy still offers the V8 Silverado. It's not as if these electric utes are coming to take away market from the existing owners. They're there to offer an alternative to people who don't want a diesel or a petrol ute, but they still want that form factor and that ability to chuck stuff in the back. The argument that unless all of our current Hilux customers could hop behind the wheel of an electric one and do what they're doing now straight away, I just don't think holds water because you have to start somewhere. And ultimately, the electric and the diesel and petrol ranges can be complementary. So although I understand the logic of it, I don't know that an electric Hilux needs to be the same thing as a petrol Hilux to start with. It doesn't even need to be called a Hilux necessarily. But I do think Toyota needs to start getting into that space lest it be left behind. Mm. All right. Well, we're going to move on to uh, some more EVs now. Uh, Jack, we've got a rival coming, another Chinese rival, uh, for the MG4 and the GWM or a good cat coming here. So, yeah, um, BYD, we've been hearing a lot about um, this company over the last little bit. I've talked about it a lot on the podcast, and there are also a lot of car, a lot of BYD vehicles coming over the next 24 months. Uh, 24 months, should say, if I didn't get my tongue tied. <laughs> the first one uh, is going to be the BYD Dolphin, Q Dolphin sounds that I don't really want to do. Because <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me they're going to change the name when it gets here. Well, hopefully, yes. So that's um, one of the things uh, that will most likely change when it arrives. Um, uh, but I will say the, the BYD Dolphin uh, name hasn't been confirmed, but it is going to be coming in the first half of next year. Um, it was meant to to, uh, go on sale either late this year or early next year, but it just got pushed back a little bit, but it's still on the way. Um, as you mentioned, Mandy, this particular um, BYD Dolphin is going to be a rival to the forthcoming MG4 and GWM or a good cap. So think of it as a really small hatchback. It was um, recently spied on um, in Australia on the streets driving around, so it's not too far away and it's very small and cute. Um, few details uh, are known about the, the BYD Dolphin thus far, but as I mentioned, it'll likely have a different name. Um, names such as the EA1, and Atto 2 have been previously speculated, um, but nothing has been locked in just yet. Um, and another thing that's been confirmed is it'll be priced under the Atto 3 SUV. That makes a lot of sense because it is a smaller vehicle. Um, another BYD vehicle that's arriving next year is a Tesla Model 3 rivaling sedan, uh, which in China is called the Seal Q Seal. <laughs> 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 um, so that uh, that model is set to arrive in the second half of 2023. Um, just like the the Dolphin, as it'll be likely called a different name, um, been previously speculated to be called the Atto Four, but um, we'll have to wait and see because that hasn't been confirmed yet. Um, Lastly, and the most exciting in my eyes, um, BYD distributor EV Direct has confirmed it's launching an electric ute in 2024. Um, this model was recently spied in China and will go up against uh, vehicles such as the LDV ET60, JAC T9 EV, and potentially um, the Geely Radar RD6. Now, guys, what are you most looking forward to out of these three uh, new BYD vehicles coming to Australia? Uh, I think for me, my, my favourite member of the aquarium is probably the seal. Um, I, I really like the way it looks in pictures. Uh, and I think also the Model 3 has shown there's still a space for a compact sedan provided that it has the right powertrain. People who want to buy electric cars maybe want something a bit different and 
don't necessarily want to stand out, sorry, don't necessarily want to join the crowd with an SUV. So the idea of a an affordably priced, good looking, and if the Addo 3 is any guide, pretty good to drive alternative to the Model 3 is pretty appealing. But I mean, in keeping with the Hilux conversation, another electric ute coming to Australia uh, is is only good news because at the moment we're still kind of starved for that stuff. Mm. Let's stick with another theme, shall we? Uh, more Chinese cars, the GWM Tank 300 Hybrid. We've got a price for this one, Jack. Yeah, definitely. I can sense a theme with the new stories that I keep on suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the way of the future, though, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. It's the, the things that are... the things that are most exciting at the moment, at least anyway. So, yeah, GWM, um, the first model uh, from the GWM, uh, GWM, that's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? GWM tank sub-brand is um, set to arrive, and it's going to be called the Tank 300 Hybrid. Uh, so this model uh, shares some of its uh, four-wheel drive uh, ladder frame underpinnings um, with the GWM Ute that you would most likely know. It's already on sale, um, but it has a petrol electric powertrain. This model is going to be priced from uh, $55,990 to $69,990 drive away, which makes it the most expensive GWM vehicle on sale in Australia to date. It's a fair bit of money. So this uh, Tank 300 uh, is powered by a hybrid powertrain consisting a two-litre four-cylinder petrol engine producing 180 kilowatts and 380 newton metres and also an electric motor uh, producing 78 kilowatts and 268 newton metres. Um, uh, combined uh, power and torque figures haven't been confirmed for the Australian market just yet. Uh, GWM uh, Havel Australia says that towing capacity uh, for this Tank 300 hybrid will be around uh, 2,500 kilos, so roughly where it is uh, for the market, I'd say, a little bit lower than others. Um, it's going to have a 224-millimetre ground clearance, 33-degree approach angle, 34-degree departure angle, and it's also going to have a torque-on-demand uh, full-time four-wheel drive system. Now, this is a little bit interesting when I when I read it. So it, the, it, it measures in at – it's a little bit smaller than the, the Isuzu MUX and the Ford Everest, but it's obviously quite larger than a typical midsize SUV. So it kind of places it a little bit awkwardly in the segment because it's also – it's a lot cheaper than the, the Jeep Wrangler. So it's a really interesting uh, – pitch to, to be making in the Australian market. And the one thing that stood out to me as well is the government documents say that this Tank 300 um, is going to have a, a tear mass of 2,300 kilos. So it's going to be a big chunky boy. And if you've seen the photos, it's very square, very much like the Wrangler, but obviously a lot cheaper. Um, what are your thoughts, guys? I think it actually looks really cool. And um, I typically am fairly skeptical of new China, Chinese offerings, but I think that um, given the segment and that the um, or the, the demographic that the tank is appealing to is the kind of people that love Jimneys and Wranglers and G-Wagons. And really, when you think about the Australian market specifically, a lot of people buy Wranglers and Jimneys, and this is not no offense to you, Jack, but a lot of people buy Wranglers and Jimneys because they like to feel like they're driving something along those lines. Because, you know, the G-Wagon now is a fashion statement people don't actually take them off road so the fact that this looks and you look at the interior it actually looks like a g-wagon inside mm. and it's 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 expensive for a gwm but it's still competitively priced relative to the market i feel like a lot of people that would buy these would probably be 
you know, people in their 20s and 30s who want something a little bit different might want to go camping. They're not really satisfied with what some of the mainstream brands are offering and, and this is something a bit different. It's got a hybrid powertrain. You know, it, it's a really, really cool looking thing. I'd be really interested to see what kind of colors they offer because I know overseas they've got um, like, you know, bright oranges, eye searing greens and all that kind of thing. So there could be a real opportunity there for great wall motors um, to offer an array of personalization and accessory options, much like how we see with Suzuki with the Jimny or um, Jeep has a range of Mopar accessories that it offers across the range. And um, Mercedes-Benz, obviously, if you get to that budget, they have all the individual or the I think they call it Designo options that they offer for most of their range. So I think it's a super um, interesting car. And I think that uh, Australia is a really good test bed for this kind of thing because um, Chinese brands have proven that you know, it's not a barrier for entry. People are buying Havels, MGs, um, LDVs, all in droves. Look at BYD and Tesla now selling cars made there. People don't seem to care anymore. So there's really a huge opportunity. Who knows, this could become their best-selling model if they get enough of them. I think it also proves that Ford made a mistake by not working, not being able to get the Bronco Sport here. I know it's a slightly different car because it's an Escape underneath, but ultimately this is a... Slightly premium priced midsize sort of four wheel drive for people who live in the city potentially, but want to look a little bit off roady and have a bit more space and capability than a regular Havel H6 or something like that. Uh, that that demand exists, and the Bronco Sport would have been perfect for it. Uh, and unfortunately, we can't get it in Australia. It wouldn't surprise me if a few of the people who like the look of the Bronco Sport, even though it is a bit of a different thing with its ladder frame chassis, end up looking at a Tank 300. Mm. I bet there's going to be a lot of people also looking for the Ford F-150. It's undergoing some right-hand drive testing, Jack. I bet a lot of people drooling over this news. 100%. Me included, actually. I have to pick up my drool. <laughs> so yeah, Ford With the Jimmy uh, in the back. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, Ford has subjected uh, the incoming uh, re-engineered right-hand drive F-150 pickup to over 135,000 kilometres of durability testing ahead of its local launch in 2023. Um, so the F-150 has faced uh, temperatures between negative 40 and positive 50 degrees Celsius, so a wide range. It's um, well, going to be well-catered to all of the Australian uh, climates because it can be freezing and also hot here, as you all would know. Um, the, uh, Ford has also done a range of trailer testing, mud, ultra-fine sand, water crossing and corrosion testing um, on the F-150. Uh, Ford has driven across its um, Silver Creek Road a durab- a durability test track hundreds of times and it's also uh, uh, taken the F-150 uh, on its kinematic and compliance rig um, at its Yu Yang's Proving Ground where it was testing out its uh, driveline steering wheels and suspension. So it's been under under a lot of scrutiny and a lot of testing to make sure that it's up to scratch in Australia. Um, So this uh, might sound familiar where I mentioned the Yu Yangs and kind of the Australian development because uh, this is where the Global Ranger and Everest projects were overseen. So it's uh, very familiar. And uh, Ford says it's uh, received more than 8,000 expressions of interest in the F-150. So I'm definitely not alone in being really excited for um, F-150. It announced that it's coming in re-engineered form in May this year. It's also taken thousands of orders, it says, too. So we'll be seeing a fair few next year. Um, But I want to know, guys, how will this stack up uh, 
in regard to the competitions such as the Chevrolet Silverado 1500, Ram 1500, and also the upcoming Toyota Tundra that hasn't yet been confirmed from my understanding. Yeah, the, the Tundra hasn't been confirmed, but they've invested millions and millions of dollars in testing them. They've told us how they'll build them when they come here, what's going to happen to the development cars when they're ready. It, it has been confirmed. For all intents and purposes, that Tundra is coming. Um, the F-150 is going to be interesting to see because it's sort of going to occupy a different space to those other trucks in Oz. Ram brings of the DT version, the newest 1500, only the top spec cars, the Laramie and the Limited. Uh, Chevy offers an off-road trail boss and then the LTZ Premium of the Silverado 1500. And Ford hasn't brought the brilliantly named King Ranch or the Platinum or any of those really high-end F-150s. We've got two mid-range models. So it's going to be interesting to see, for one, how they're priced, but also whether Ford can drag some workhorse customers away from the older DS Ram 1500 or whether it gets a little bit lost in the crowd of the higher-end Utes, which if I'm already spending $100,000 on a V8 or a turbo V6 pickup, I probably just want everything I can get. Um, yeah, whether it, whether it falls a little bit short in terms of what it offers relative to the Silverado and the Ram. Uh, I think that it will do very well here. Um, I know that uh, customers for Ford have been crying out for this kind of an option for a really long time. And given my um, fairly short stint working at Ford's head office, <laughs> I know that uh, I think the reasoning behind the offerings that they're going to launch with is I think what they're really trying to appeal to at the beginning is existing Ford customers that want more capability than what the Ranger can give. So obviously you can get the Ranger with the, you know, the new Ranger with a Raptor engine. It's super fast. It obviously can do like all the Baja stuff. But I think in terms of like having a, you know, a petrol, a high output petrol car that can tow more than three and a half tonnes, um, you know, for big caravans, horse floats, boats, all that kind of thing. I feel like it's trying to, it's Ford Australia trying to extend their current offering to, to, to offer a new option for their existing um, customer base. And then I guess in that process, they'll potentially steal customers away from Ram and Chevrolet. Um, and I think that with the, they've sort of left the door open for more offerings. You can imagine, like we saw with Ranger, they, they recently brought out the new Platinum. Um, which is like the luxury one. So I imagine that you can sort of see where that F-150 might go from its initial launch. You'll sort of see that it, it exists that first lot of customers going for the stuff where the volume is and then where there's more demand, they'll go up or they'll go sideways or, you know, they'll bring a, a fast one or they might bring an electric one, you never know. Um, but I think... It, having choice is great uh, in terms of where given we've got this weird thing in Australia where people want low emissions but we're also buying these huge truck petrol guzzling trucks in record numbers is a bit of an oxymoron in my opinion but I guess there's a need and a want for them and, and therefore the market can be satisfied with a new option and given for this is almost a factory-backed operation it's not some you know third-party thing it's Ford Australia working within its own engineering um team and all that kind of stuff and working with other partners, um, it might be a more well-rounded offering um, at the end of the day too. Well, you can always keep up to date with the latest news by clicking the news link at carexpert.com.au. Thank you so much, Jack Quick. Thanks, Mandy. Hello, William Stopford. Hello, Mandy. We've got you on this week to talk about the 2023 Audi Q8 e-tron. Uh, thank goodness for next year's model, there's been a welcome boost in range. 
Yes, I'm, I'm here to talk to you guys about an electric SUV as I sit in an electric SUV uh, recording this podcast. So I went to the Canary Islands, to Lanzarote, to test drive the new Audi Q8 e-tron. Now, a little bit confusing. It's not really got that much to do with the Q8. It uses the same kind of basic platform, but this is simply a renamed version of last year's, or sorry, the current year's e-tron. Inside, it looks identical. um, And outside, it's gotten a little bit of a facelift. It's nice, nothing nothing spectacularly different. But you're absolutely right. The biggest changes have come under the skin. So the base 50 is more powerful than before. It's got 20 kilowatts more power in boost mode for a total of 250. Um, It's zero to 100 time has been slashed from 6.8 seconds to 6 seconds. but the range, that's the most significant uh, change there. So the base 50 actually has 40% more range than before. Wow. And the 55 and the SQ8's range figures on the WLTP cycle are up by up to 30%. So that was our biggest criticism of the e-tron before. For the price point, the range was really nothing flash. But now with the use of larger batteries. So the old e-tron used to open with a 71 kilowatt hour battery. It's now got a 95 kilowatt hour battery. And the 55 and the SQ8 now have a new nickel cobalt aluminium 114 kilowatt hour battery. Um, So the e-tron 50, its range has now been bumped up to between 491 and 505 kilometers, which is a lot better than it was before and puts it in a much better stead uh, against the likes of the BMW iX. So um, I was just going to say, uh, how does the pricing compare to its rivals? Oh, wait and see, because we <laughs> don't have local pricing yet. Um, and I think that was probably uh, another thing that held back the e-tron. The, the segment, the large kind of luxury electric SUV segment, it's still in its very early days. I mean, I know the Tesla Model X has been around for a while, but you know, a lot of companies have been a little bit kind of slower to get into that segment. Um, but the the e-tron, in terms of pricing, it always seemed like a, a perhaps a little bit of an ask, considering it didn't look that much different inside from a much cheaper Q7. Uh, but again, it didn't have that much competition. But now you've got the iX has come along since the e-tron launched here. Mercedes-Benz is about to launch their EQE SUV. Um, there are electric SUVs in, in this segment coming eventually from the likes of Maserati. So it's it's just getting more and more competitive. So Audi has actually done a pretty good job of keeping the now Q8 e-tron relevant, but pricing is a big question mark. Will the e-tron, although it was quite early to the EV party, has also to drive never felt as special or as sort of, I guess, interesting as something like an iX or even an EQC, which has a very comfortable, quiet, wafty thing going on. Has Audi made any changes to the drivetrain or the suspension to make it feel more electrifying? He, said it. he really said it, didn't he? <laughs> uh, I, I think um, I reviewed an e-tron a while back and, and the way I summarized it was this is a really nice electric SUV for like your well-to-do like grandparent. You know, it, it's it's completely unthreatening and innocuous. It, it's, it, it doesn't feel, there's no weird gimmicks like a, a, a fake propulsion sounds or things like that it looks it feels it handles quite similar to like a q7 or q8 so it's all really familiar look audi has made some improvements to make 
the car a little bit more enjoyable to drive. Um, they did concede that the outgoing e-tron could be a little bit floaty. Um, so they've said that they've improved agility and steering precision by 10%. They said they've improved steering weighting by 20%, uh, reduced pitch and roll body movements by 10%. Uh, lots of kind of figures um, and, and, and um, quantifications that they've, that they've made there. In terms of how it actually it's drives. How, how delightfully difficult to quantify all of those things are <laughs> as you're <laughs> yeah. turning the wheel, noting the 8% improvement in agility. It doesn't really <laughs> oh, work, does it? 8% better. This feels 6% better at best. No, <laughs> it's um, all in all, I mean, it doesn't feel dramatically different. You know, the steering perhaps feels a little bit more direct than it did before. Um I, I didn't really find the old e-tron to feel all that ponderous uh, to drive. So it's not like there were some any really glaring dynamic deficiencies that needed to be addressed. But yeah, if you're expecting it to feel like a much different vehicle and to feel a little bit more special or, or a little bit, I guess, distinctive, they haven't really done that much to change it. But all in all, it's still a very pleasant vehicle to drive. Hmm. Um, what sort of tech has it got in it, Will? Um, look, uh, are we talking like infotainment or? Yeah. Yeah. Inside, yeah. yeah. Um, look inside it's, it's, it's much the same as it was before. So it's, it's, it's honestly a good setup. Again, it doesn't really look all that different from a Q7 or a Q8. It's, it's, it's kind of remarkable what Audi has done here. The, the vehicle doesn't share any sheet metal with any of the other Audi SUVs, but it kind of sort of looks like them. And then inside, if you actually look at the dashboard design, it is a bit different from a Q7 and a Q8, but like not really. <laughs> so it's all, <laughs> it's uh, different, but uh, I think you've kind of got, you've generally got two schools of thought in the, in the electric um, vehicle market at the moment with the premium brands, because you've got some companies that will release a car that looks just wildly different from any of their um, internal combustion vehicles, like the BMW iX. But then you've got others that will, again, you know, BMW is another example, um, where they just take the combustion engine vehicle and, you know, visually it's it differs only in terms of like the grill and here's some extra blue trim there. Um, but even though the the interior isn't identical to a Q7 or Q8, that the technology is, is effectively the same. So dual uh, 10.1 and 8.6 inch displays on the center stack plus a 12.3 inch digital instrument cluster. Audi does in car tech so well. Like I know it it might not have the the drama of like a, an enormous Tesla style uh, center touch screen, but the infotainment system just just works well. It looks good. It has quick response times. It's got this kind of faux kind of sort of haptic feedback to it, which has, has grown on me. The climate display, look, I'll always prefer physical climate knobs, but if you're going to put that stuff on a, on a separate screen, like, you know, the likes of Land Rover do, Audi does a pretty good job. The digital instrument cluster is superb. Um, having those those satellite maps it, it somehow manages to look fantastic without being distracting and there's a level of kind of customization with the screens there the head-up display works well although it doesn't have um the slick or augmented reality head-up display uh, that we experienced in the q4 e-tron that i drove in germany just before i went to spain to drive this um i really that was that was probably the most memorable thing about the q4 e-tron not saying it's a bad thing but it's genuinely a pretty cool head-up display um but yeah overall very good technology in the car 
Will, curious to know about the updated styling. I always thought the previous e-tron was a very sort of plain is the wrong word, but it was a very straight-edged car, but it was always very handsome. And I look at the photos of the new one that's got some new LED lights and details on it and things that make it a little bit busier in pictures. Have they done what Jaguar used to be prone to doing and added more detail but not necessarily improved the styling? I'm glad you asked that, actually, because I've been noticing more um, over the past couple of years. I, I don't see many e-trons on the road. It's not a big seller in Australia, but I've been noticing them more in TV shows. Like uh, uh, Larry David drives one in, in Curb Your Enthusiasm now, which actually seems really out of character. But uh, And I keep seeing it on TV, and I'm like, yeah, that's a good-looking SUV. And this facelift looks slightly different, I, but I don't necessarily think that it's an improvement. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't like this uh, this new LED uh, lighting up front. I think if you're going to have a light bar, make it connect. Like it's just like here's a light here, here's a light here, here's a light here, oh. and so it's a bit disjointed. But in person. It does look less fussy. Um, it doesn't look radically different from what it did before. But I think um, the one of the cars that I drove was a 55 wagon. I always prefer the wagons over the sportbacks. And it was in this new, it was in this color, I think, called Kronos Gray with black wheels. Gray car with black wheels, not my bag at all usually. But looking at it, 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 it was a very, very handsome looking car. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. The I think... Car companies often fall into that kind of facelift trap with like, oh, we need to do something slightly different. We need to change it, but we can't, you know, we can't invest in, you know, new stampings or things like that. So let's change the lights, let's change the wheels, you know. And sometimes they facelifts do end up a little bit fussier because it kind of takes it almost seems to take the car away from the original design vision. Um, this does look a little bit fussier, but I don't think it ruins the styling. It's just there there wasn't much that really needed improving. How about the new SQ8 Etron, which is just the old e-tron s tri-motor setup has that changed significantly how does it feel on the road when, uh, again it's 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 much a muchness there and and i think as well the e-tron s as kind of novel as a tri-motor electric powertrain sounds having driven the, the you know the pre-update model it never really felt dramatically different from a regular e-tron and that's not really changed here. So it um, it gets that new 114 kilowatt hour battery. Um, DC fast charging is up from 150 to 170 kilowatts. Um, there's more range than before. Um, and of course it gets the various dynamic tweaks that have been made to the regular Q8 e-tron. But it does feel much the same. So we drove a 55 wagon on the first day and then we drove an SQ8 wagon on the second day. And, you know, it's a little bit quicker. It's perhaps a little bit firmer in feel. Um, but it's... Audi says that some of the changes that they made to make the e-tron S and, and now SQ8 e-tron are the same level of changes that they would make to turn a regular Audi into an RS model, but they've explicitly made clear that they're, they're not cool. They don't. They didn't want to call this an RS model, and I think that tracks because it it doesn't really feel 
particularly wild. I mean, if you go into this thinking that it's going to be some high performance, you know, like, you know, a Lamborghini Urus with a battery. No, <laughs> that's not <laughs> what it is. Um, it is a very comfortable cruiser. Uh, the ride quality is still quite good in the SQ8 e-tron. Um, but there's there's not really much more in the way of thrills there as much as a tri-motor powertrain might suggest, you know, tri-motor tra- powertrain and torque vectoring would suggest that it's some kind of performance SUV. It's, it's just really a, a very fast and, and capable cruiser. Uh, Will, knowing what you know about the new one and then given your experience with the previous one, and you noted before that the sales of the e-tron previously have not been stellar in our market, do you think that the range of improvements for the Q8 and SQ8 e-tron will perhaps give it a better shot at actually doing decent volume in Australia now? That's a good question. I mean, it certainly stacks up better against its competitors. And I think if you're one of the, um, the people out there that, doesn't want their EV to look like a spaceship. And I know we were talking about this quite recently. Um, for a lot of Audi buyers um, who are looking at going electric, the, the Q8 e-tron now just makes more sense than the old e-tron did. And in terms of its range and, and, and performance figures and, and, and charging times and all of that, it now is more competitive against the likes of the BMW iX. So I think there have been some meaningful improvements that have been made here, um, and it should appeal to more people, but whether sales will dramatically increase, I mean, none of these large luxury electric SUVs are huge sellers at the moment in Australia. So it remains to be seen whether uh, this will be a stronger seller than before. All right, you've given it a car expert rating of 8.1 and that review is live now if you'd like to go and have a read of that. Thank you, William Stopford. Thanks, Bandy. Jero, you've been driving the 2023 Honda Civic e-HEV. Um, these names are just so confusing to me. But anyway, <laughs> um, what were your thoughts on it? Oh, I had many thoughts actually. It was um, it's, it's a very interesting car, the Civic Hybrid. Let's just call it the Civic Hybrid for now, because yes. writing out eHev on a keyboard is much easier than saying it out in person. So, um, the Civic Hybrid, we've been waiting for it for a long time. Um, we've obviously seen it launch in other markets like Europe. Um, I've been very in tune with the the UK coverage in particular, and they've been very very complimentary of it. So, I was very keen to get behind the wheel of the, the new Civic because I think one thing that Honda does really well particularly with its latest generation of products is that all their cars drive quite well um, the new generation of design is quite you know clean and uncluttered it's almost like a Japanese um, Volkswagen Ikea sort of thing where they they do clean lines very simple uncluttered stuff now and um, it's it's kind of got like a little a fun little quirk to it and that you know they're cute and cuddly looking and but they drive really well so the platforms have all been engineered to be quite fun so I know Scott did the launch of the petrol Civic a little while ago and was very complimentary of it with a bar the price and i feel like it's sort of a similar story here so the the civic hybrid um in a nutshell and we can go into the specifics later but the civic hybrid is a wonderful car to drive um it's way more fun and fast than any toyota hybrid on the market right now um and it it's packaged and presents like the other Civic. So if you like the design, it's got like that sporty hatchback style um, aesthetic. It comes in a really nice blue, a really nice red and a, and a pearl white. And then some of the features that we criticized um, the petrol version for not having have been added here. So it gets a fully digital di- digital instrument cluster, a sunroof, um, full leather trim, uh, a few other things in there, which are all listed in my review as well as our pricing and specs article. Um, the main issue 
issue that I had with it is is the asking price. So at fifty five thousand dollars drive away, it's not cheap um, for any small car, let alone a, a Honda Civic. And you know, it's more expensive than the entry prices of even say like an Audi A three, BMW one series, as well as the even the Mercedes Benz A class, which is wow. more expensive than the expensive ones. So um, I kept on finding myself drawing comparisons in my review and while I was assessing it to something like a an Audi A3 35 TFSI. So um, for those who don't know, the, the base Audi A3 is a 48 volt mild hybrid. And this drivetrain has been around in um, Europe for a really long time. And even though it's not a, a proper hybrid that can actually drive the wheels with an electric motor, like you might find in a Toyota or, or in this Honda Civic, for example, it can still achieve sub five liter um, per hundred K efficiency. And so um, the, the Civic drives wonderfully. It's more fun than you know, a, a Corolla, for example, it's it's actually quite fast. The, the Honda is fairly conservative with the zero to 100 claim. I think in their presentation, they sort of said, oh, we reckon it'll do 7.8 seconds, zero to 100. Um, but uh, Paul Marek recently uh, shoot, shot, shoot it. Wow, that was good. Um, <laughs> recently shot a video um, where he does his usual zero to 100 times. And I'm pretty sure he managed to do zero to 100 in under seven seconds, which is quite quick. Um and you know it's it's quite fast, and also it's it's a lot of fun to drive. That the steering, the all the driver controls are super communicative. Um, the feel is very fluid. It's the chassis is really hunkered down, balanced, and keen to turn in. So you can actually have quite a lot of fun with this car. And potentially one little fun thing about it is that when you have it in its sports setting and you absolutely mash the throttle, it makes it, it the the speakers synthesize the engine noise, and it's got this like really high pitched V tech sort of whine. It, it almost sounds a little bit like an old F1 car. It's quite an interesting oh, thing to hear. Out. But it's, um, yeah, like it's it's just, it keeps on um, pulling where, you know, some hybrids that you'll, that are that are mainly based around economy will sort of run out of puff at the top end, whereas this one just really wants to go and there's really good response low down from the electric motor. And then once both power sources are, are, are firing concurrently um it still has quite a bit to give so i was very impressed with it as an all-around package it's just a shame about the price and the value equation jay well having driven both the sedan with the petrol and sorry the hatch now with the petrol and the hybrid power i was actually blown away by how different the hybrid feels you hop in a toyota hybrid and although you get the electric motor off the mark ultimately when you accelerate you get essentially the feeling of a petrol engine with a cvt and a bit of electric boost how is the toy- the Honda system actually set up relative to a Toyota one? And, and how does it sort of shuffle its power around? Because it felt more electric, for want of a better term. Yeah, so I think the main difference here is that I, from what I could understand of the, the technical side of it, it's all very similar. There's like a, a, a dual, like one of those eCVT transmissions that shuffles power sources as required. Um, the Honda uses a lithium battery, which most Toyotas are starting to move to now, which are a little bit more energy dense. But I think the main thing here is that the electric motor in the Civic actually has power. Um, a lot of the, the, the electric motors in Toyotas are, are quite weak generally and are designed to, you know, drive at low speeds when you're in stop-start traffic or perhaps in a car park. Whereas the Civic, like I did it on multiple occasions now, I almost got up to a freeway speeds without even turning the engine on. So you can easily get up to about 60 um, 
in without really feathering the throttle and you can get it up to um, up to speed without firing the petrol engine. So it's almost like it's somewhere in between like a Toyota hybrid and a plug-in hybrid in hybrid mode, if that makes sense. So there's mm-hmm. an electric motor with genuine, you know, I think the electric motor has like 300 newt meters of torque on its own. So it's actually the torquier of the two powertrains by quite some margin. And then the, the petrol engine is a two liter motor. So that's another difference between the Civic and the Corolla, at least in Australia, is that the Corolla in Australia only has the 1.8. So system outputs is like 103 kilowatts and Toyota doesn't quote a torque figure, whereas Honda um, quotes like 130, 140 kilowatts and 315 newton meters, which is, you know, for a small car, 315 newton meters is quite a lot. My Golf makes 380 and that's a GCI. So, you know, you're somewhere between um, like a low a fairly low output, small capacity, um, turbocharged European engine and a more performance oriented motor as well. So like you said, Scott, it's, it seems to just really be eager to go. There was a, I was driving with a, another journalist who was quite eager to test out the performance capabilities, if we, we'll put it politically. Um, <laughs> and he kept on saying like, you know, you could really get yourself into trouble with this because if you have it in a sporty setting, it, as soon as you touch the pedal, it just shoots off. Um, so it's, it's just a really well calibrated drivetrain that just makes hybrids fun and we managed to keep the fuel consumption between five and six liters per hundred k's despite having extended freeway runs and you know quite a bit of spirited driving in there so i have to say like I was really impressed with all of it, like I said before, and I can see where the overseas media have um, formed their critiques on. It's it's a really great car. There's it's in this specification we get like basically the highest specification you can get in Australia, whereas like in somewhere like the UK you get three or four versions that you can get. Um, you know, it's pretty well featured. There's a couple of things still missing, like you don't get a 360 camera. Um, I think the headlights aren't matrix LEDs. They're just normal LEDs with an auto high beam, but that's, you know, horses for courses. Um, it's just really that price. And, and 55 drive away still maybe works out to around 50 plus on roads. That's still a lot of money. And in terms of, you know, mainstream badge rivals, it's more expensive than a top spec Mazda 3. It's more expensive than a top spec Golf that's not a performance model. It's more expensive than a even a Toyota Camry, the highest specification of Toyota Camry hybrid is still thousands cheaper. And I think that's just really where it's going to fall flat is that, you know, people will look at it and be like, it looks cool, it drives well, but a lot of customers will be like, well, why would I spend this much money if I could get an SUV or a luxury badge car or a, a, a vehicle from the size up that's a high specification? So I think that's the problem. Just in terms of the positioning, it's in a spot where the only people that are really going to want to buy it are people who love the Honda brand or perhaps are just so smitten by the drive experience that they have to have one. You've sort of uh, jumped ahead of me there. I was going to ask about the pricing, but I, I, do, I do wonder what do you think it needs to cost? Because the car itself is really strong. If you were to drop five grand, seven grand, ten grand off the price, where do you think in an ideal world it would sit that would make it a really hard car to ignore? I think if it was closer to 50, um, it would be a lot easier to recommend. Um, and it lower again, it would be a steal. If it was 45, if it was the price of the petrol, which is 47 and a half drive away, it would be almost a steal because you know a, a high spec Mazda 3 I think the the Sky Active X Astina is maybe 46 drive away in Victoria um, a Corolla a high spec Corolla ZR sedan if you want to talk you know even though it's not a hatch but it's got the, a boot that's competitive with the with the Civics a high spec Corolla sedan hybrid is probably like mid 40s now drive away so it would just be it would still be a premium 
product in terms of its positioning compared to something like a Mazda 3 or Corolla, but it would still be close enough that it wouldn't necessarily, I feel like that price figure just might be a deal breaker for some people. It has the potential to be, you know, a, a really good seller or because you know, people want hybrids. We, I've, we've spoken to Honda multiple occasions where, you know, the HRV, even though the, and the HRV is a premium proposition at 45 or 46 travel away for the hybrid. Even that car has an eight, nine month waiting list just because the people that are choosing to buy an HRV are just opting for the hybrid. And we'll probably see that for Civic. We might see them have waiting lists because even if they have a small allocation or even with the premium pricing, there are people that have wanted a Civic or the new Civic and have been waiting for the hybrid. Um, so I think that it probably, my, my idea would be 50 or under. Um, and I think that would open it up to a lot more people. Um, but yeah, I think 55 is just a step too far, especially when you're almost knocking on the door of the Accord Hybrid, which is an even bigger, more luxurious car again. And while it's not necessarily as sporty as the Civic, there's, you know, a, a grandeur about having an Accord over a Civic, if that makes sense. Because, you know, most of us have grown up with a Honda, a Honda Civic in our lives in some way. And, you know, that what once upon a time, that nameplate was associated with like basic Corollas, Nissan Pulsars, Kia Cerados, that kind of thing where they started in... It, with a price starting with two. And now the fact that, you know, they only have two specifications, one's a high 40s and one's a mid 50s proposition, that's a lot of money, even with prices rising today. So in saying that, I feel like, you know, you look at a Kia Nero GT line hybrid, which is almost the same money um, drive away. And then it seems to make a lot more sense. I liked the Nero a lot when I drove it and when it came out and, you know, you could sort of be like, oh, well, it's an SUV, so you can charge a little bit more. I would have the Civic over a, a hybrid Nero every day of the week. It is so much more fun. It looks cool. It's probably – and even though they're both a little bit different in terms of their design and and what they offer, I think that the Civic makes a lot more sense. So, yeah, it's just – it's there's so much good about it, but that price – you just keep on coming back to that price and it's a real sticking point. Just before we wrap up, J-Wo, uh, what's the servicing like? So, Honda um, has 12-month, 10,000-kilometer uh, intervals, which um, month-wise or time-wise is fine. It's the 10,000 one that's a little bit shorter compared to most competition. Most um, rival brands and models will have you in every 15,000 cases day, these days. So, if you do a lot of mileage, that's a problem. Um, and one thing I also noticed when I wrote the review is that they've jacked up their service pricing. So, um, from July 1 last year when they announced their new um, agency fixed price model and October and September 30 or October 1st, um, Hondas were being sold with the promise of five years of cap price servicing um, capped at $125, which really is the best in the industry, um, this side of any of the electric makes that don't require servicing every year. So, you know, that was a really, really compelling part of the Honda buying experience is that even though you're paying maybe a bit of a premium at the from a purchase standpoint, the ongoing running costs would should be quite affordable. Um, they've recently jacked it up to $199 um, for all contracts signed from October 1st. So if you've made an order post well, what from 1st of October onwards, you're now going to be paying $199, which is still good. It's competitive with Toyota. And before Honda introduced their previous pricing, that was sort of like the benchmark. Um, but it also means that, you know, next to say, again, like a Camry hybrid or Corolla hybrid, which now have 15,000 kilometer intervals, you're going to be going back there more often if you do high mileage per year. Um, and you're also, you know, you're not offsetting that purchase price with cheaper running costs. So it's a slightly disappointing move by Honda. I guess it was bound to happen 
you know, labor is expensive these days. And we're seeing that a lot of brands are telling us how a lot of their profit drivers at a dealership or service level is at, you know, when cars, customers come back for servicing. But um, at the same time, you know, that was something that we used to really praise Honda for in our reviews is that, you know, they've got the cheapest servicing out there um, and you'd be able to service the car for five years for about 600, 700 bucks. Now you're paying the equivalent of you know, $300, $350 extra over that five-year period, which is going to, um, you know, it, it's a significant enough difference that it has to be called out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've given it a car expert rating of eight. It's at the site now if you'd like to go and have a read. All right, that's a wrap for this week's podcast. Hey, J-Wo, what's the team driving over the Christmas break? Uh, we're all in sleighs. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so we've got a few cars over the, the Christmas break, some interesting metal that's coming through. Uh, so we've got uh, the new Nissan Qashqai Ti, which um, I would love to tell everyone about, but um, considering I did the launch and the embargoes in January, um, I can't actually tell you how good it is yet, neither can the rest of the team, but it'll be good for um, some of the guys and girls to get through that car over Christmas. Uh, we've also got a Mitsubishi Outlander XC2, a plug-in hybrid EV. Um, we've got a Lexus LX500D F-Sport, so the sporty diesel one. Uh, we've got a Peugeot 308 GT Premium Wagon, um, and I'm pretty sure when I saw it in the car park, it's in that lovely avatar blue, so big win for um, our social channels if, if we can yeah. get some photos of it. Uh, we've also got a Kia Sorento GT Line Diesel, uh, which is one of the which is quite hot property these days. Um, Tony Crawford is going to be driving the Land Rover Defender 90 V8 up in Sydney, which is a super cool car that I forgot about before I um, got the email saying that he had booked it. So that's that'll be a really cool one for him. And then Will Stopford is driving the Volvo C40 Recharge Single, so the entry-level version of that electric crossover coupe thingy. Hmm. What are you guys driving? <laughs> I am going to be driving a, I assume, A380 from Melbourne to Los Angeles. I'm, I'm going on holiday over Christmas. I'm going to be in the States from Christmas Day until just before the end of January. So nice. we're renting a car when we're in Wyoming going skiing and I assume it'll be a mid-sized SUV on snow tires knowing uh, knowing how the rental companies usually work around there but yeah I'm uh, I'm giving up the cars for about a month and I'm going to be walking and skiing and taking Ubers instead. Nice. Are you actually going to spend Christmas in LA? Uh, so we we arrive in New York on at about nine thirty p.m. on Christmas Day. So wow. we, we will be in New York on Christmas. Whether we're in any state to do Christmassy things is another question entirely. <laughs> but there'll be snow. How exciting! Yeah, there'll be snow. There'll be trees, and two very tired Australians ready to go to bed. <laughs> Uh, that's um that's very very exciting indeed. Well, um this is the last podcast for 2022. We are back next year. Actually, guys, what day are we back? So the car expert shutdown, call it, ends on January three. Um, so that week after that, I would imagine, uh, when everyone is actually back up at full speed, will probably be the first podcast back. So call it second week of January twenty twenty three. We will be back, blessing your ear holes with more podcast content. Um, <laughs> Mandy, while before you actually wrap us up, thank you very much to you for everything this year um, because the podcast doesn't really work without you and I know our listeners love you. So looking forward to working with you again in 2023. Oh, thank you. I was about to say the same thing. I've, I've, I've always loved working with you guys. It's just it's, it's never work. It's just fun. 
Um, and <laughs> uh, as, as always, thank you to all our, our listeners who, who keep putting up with us. So, um, yeah, we look forward to uh, chatting to you next year. Thank you very much, Scott Colley and James Wong. Bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Mandy.